Hello and welcome to Off the Record episode 2.7. I'm psyched today. I'm going to talk to Chandler Coyle, who works at Music Geek Services as a digital strategist and is also a professor for Berkeley Online. Um, he also wrote a really cool book about what a lot of people are really kind of freaking out about as like being the best marketing tool right now, and it's shockingly Facebook. Um, they updated their service to have some really cool retargeting tools that all the cool marketing people like Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know if I want to say cool because there's nothing cool about marketing really, but like the people who are smart and wise this for years are like, this is one of the best tools, which is shocking because if you've been listening to this podcast, you know Zach and I would routinely dump on bands who do any marketing on Facebook, but they have some pretty cool, unique tools that you can be using that really can help you get a better fan base right now. Uh, and Chandler wrote a book on that that uh, you can get in the show notes. It's free, and it's just a quick ebook that explains how you can take advantage of this awesome little tool. I think I've discussed in past in this podcast that like one of the keys for a lot of bands that break in, I'm not going to say it's like you just find that one tool and it works, but if you're doing everything right and you find one of these marketing opportunities that happens at the time, like for Man Overboard, like one of the ones we had was that email for download tool was amazing. I really think that this Facebook tool right now is like one of those tools that if you could figure out how to use it, you can really see a big gain if you already are doing a good work on your band. Regardless of that, uh, I do want to talk about a few other little things. Um, if you listened to one of our past episodes, you heard Ross Barber from Electric Kiwi on. Ross is writing a really cool book about musicians talking to their fans for support, and he has a survey up, and it's linked in the show notes. Um, but I'm going to give you the address, which is electrickiwi.co.uk-survey. You should go there and take this survey if you're a musician and help him out. I think the book he's going to write is going to be fantastic. It's a great idea, so support him. He was an awesome guest on the show, and I've been on his awesome podcast, Bridge of the Atlantic, before, and he does great, great, great work for musicians. So check that out. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is Chandler, who's the guest on this show. Uh, I'm doing a free webinar with him on October 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on how you get more fans and, you know, my general knowledge of how you promote your music. And uh, I think that's going to be really fun. Uh, I also wanted to discuss some of the issues that have been going on that Off the Record used to take on a little bit more when Zach was here. Um, the first one being Spotify and Victory Dispute. A lot of people are quick to, one, shit on Spotify, and two, shit on Victory Records. And both have some merit to each of them. But the one thing I want to say is this dispute, while people are blaming Victory, I wouldn't be so quick to judge it. The company that's in the middle of all this is run by good people, and they do seem to have a substantive claim but that also doesn't discount that nine times out of ten victory is being scumbags. And, you know, we saw this week that they're suing Straylight Run. I would just say this, that before we go around shooting links everywhere, it might be good to take a step back and think about this one and let it play out a little bit more before we take definitive sides. Here's my interview with Chandler Coyle. So 
your first job is you do a service called Music Geek Services where you do web development for artists. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And do I remember correctly that you used to also do a thing about topspin tips that I used to read as well? Well, Music Geek Services was founded in 2008 by my brother, Jay, who I work with on some projects. It's mostly his his entity, Music Geek Services, and I'm his technical expert. So whenever a project comes in, related to either partially or wholly relating to internet stuff, it gets put in my lap. Uh, and so we've done everything from build offer pages for direct fan campaigns, and we also do websites. Uh, these days, it seems like a, a lot of people is uh, who are using services like Banzoogle, so it may not be building a whole website. It may be polishing one that someone built who might not have a a design eye or something. So I was hired recently by a, a band that had a Banzoogle website and they paid me for a few hours worth of work of, uh, in their manager's words to make it look a little bit more polished. That's what goes on at Music Geek Services. Topspin Tips was a website that I had for a while when Topspin became public uh, or opened their platform to the public in 2011. And it sort of died based on the lack of interest. Both, both the website and I think the platform. Is yeah, it was really sad because I, you know, at that time I was also doing a ton of writing about Topspin. I really enjoyed what you were doing, and it really was the best tools out there for bands now. And there's a little bit of a void for that. Now, yeah, it, I got, mean, it, it got to be a point where once the company was sold, bought by a merch company, it uh, we we canceled the class at Berkeley Online. There used to be a class dedicated, a 12 week class dedicated to Topspin, and there was just lack of interest there's nobody enrolling in it yeah it's it, it re really is a shame I, I guess people have figured out how to compensate and how to do the things and then obviously some of the stuff topspin was doing got banned by things like facebook and twitter right. no longer wanting to uh have you trade uh likes on facebook for uh fans doing things right very cool and so with this polish you guys do is it often a strategic or is it just a look polish can you it's tell us both. It's mostly strategic. Uh, when Music Geek Service was started, it was started by my brother uh, working with the Bare Naked Ladies. And he was hired in because he was essentially a, a, a Bare Naked Ladies super fan who had been one for years. And they were looking for someone to comb through their audio archives and help them prepare a box set. And then also come up with projects and, and interact with their fans. So he, he essentially became the fan liaison for the Bare Naked Ladies. He started doing some work with them in 2007, created Music Geek Services in 2008, and stayed working with Bare Naked Ladies until some time in 2009. He actually sort of formed the idea of the company of helping bands, not as, not as like an artist manager, but more as a, a project manager. Or, and so what we'll do is often come in and assess everything from their merch strategy to their online sales strategy, their online fan engagement strategy, online, you know, just engagement on social media, their website messaging. And, and he, he's worked a lot with, uh, Pledge Music Projects is, is one of the big things he's done lately, working with Veruca Salt. Oh, cool. Uh, I really like that new record. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. Uh, he helped them with their campaign, which is still technically active because they have to deliver the vinyl in October because vinyl's always delayed. As far as the polish, you know, like the example that I gave of Banzoogle site, that was a little bit of strategy in that the photographs they, the band was giving me weren't really, I thought, showing the band in the best light. And, and so talking with their manager 
sort of giving them guidance on on photographs from a logistical standpoint of like uh, you know you need to think of how the photo is going to look on a smartphone tablet you know most monitors are landscape and so you don't really want a really skinny picture although it'll look great on a smartphone it's not going to look great on on your desktop or on a laptop so sort of giving them guidance and waiting for the photographs and then figuring out which one of the 300 photographs they would they sent to to pick one and then working on that and then it's it's little things like just i've been building websites for 20 years so sometimes it's my eye will notice something and like to keep things a little less uh cluttered uh you know, maybe sh- shorter menu names and, and keep things just a little bit simple. Uh, the other thing, it's it probably addressed by uh, many people who build websites, but sometimes you're serving two, two audiences. And in the case of an artist, you're serving fans who are coming to check you out and, you know, or find latest news, but you're also serving industry people who are coming to maybe book you for a gig or inquire you know about you or maybe they're looking for artists to manage or something so uh, it's a struggle with some some newer artists tend to want to make their site really heavy on the industry Uh, and from my perspective as as sort of as a fan advocate is reminding artists that you also have to remember to serve the fan Uh, you want to make sure your website is stays up to date and you know if you go to a website like I was going to a website today for a band and the last news item was from 2014, and that's sad. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you make a great point here that I think is not discussed enough, which is that also that anybody in the industry wants to see that you know how to talk to fans a lot more than you know how to talk to the industry, because if they get involved with you, that's going to be their job. Right. Cool. So then you're also at Berkeley. Can you tell us about what you do there? Yes. Uh, about Three and a half years ago, I was hired by a course author there who also is their, I guess he's the VP of marketing, Mike King, um, hired me to teach the Topspin course. There was an online music marketing with Topspin class, uh, and he had found me through the Topspin tips and other stuff, which was, I guess it was good that I had built that site at the time. That morphed into teaching multiple classes, and so I teach, they're all, they all tend to be Two of them are music marketing related. There's Music Marketing 101, which I'll teach uh, when there's a significant demand. Uh, actually, my brother teaches that as the primary instructor. I got him a, a gig after uh, praising how fun it is to teach via Berkeley. Hmm. And my main course is online music marketing, uh, which is called the Direct-to-Fan class. We talk a lot about middle-class musicians, Direct-to-Fan, touch on like the Direct-to-Fan platforms uh, from Bandcamp to Towspin or StageBlock. Uh, and then I also teach music business structure and strategies, which is an MBA level class that Berkeley offers through Southern New Hampshire University. So you can get an online MBA in music business. And one of the, I teach two classes. One is music marketing strategies and then the music business structure and strategies. So the music marketing strategies is uh, very similar to the online music marketing and then the music marketing 101 class, but just at an MBA level. Um, and they're online classes. They're 12 weeks. They, they're usually about 20 students per section, so they're really manageable. Uh, and we do weekly lectures where it's more like office hours where the students and I were able to talk for an hour. Sometimes I'll have industry guests. We've had Benji Rogers from Pledge Music. We've had Jimmy Chamberlain of the Smashing Pumpkins, the drummer, uh, on as a guest. We, we've had uh, the founder of Noise Trade. We've had musicians come on and talk about projects that they're working on, but focused 
usually trying to focus it related to that week's lesson. So it can be like, here's what we're going to teach you. And then here's someone out there doing it currently that can talk about a particular project and sort of like a a live case study. Yeah, I, you know, there's a bunch of musicians who come through my studio who are doing those programs, and they always seem to be really psyched and uh, some of the better informed ones I encounter. So I think yeah. you guys are doing a, a great job. So one of the reasons I want to talk to you is, um, one, you do one of my favorite parts of getting an email, which, you know, <laughs> is very uh, rare these days when you're happy about emails. You do a uh, weekly newsletter of links of what people should be reading a little bit on the music business where I encountered something else. But why don't you tell us first about the newsletter? I'll tell you why it started because it's it's sort of an interesting story. And I've been teaching for a long time and I would do every week, probably in some cases, overwhelming the students with so many great resources and slowly learning how to curate it, sort of just saving the posting of links for something that really is worth sharing. So I started to essentially post like it was probably a couple times a week I would say here are the things that I've been reading the last couple days that I think you should check out and at the end of the course the students would say I'm going to really miss the information that you shared with us every couple days Uh, so I started the newsletter and encouraged students to sign up at the end of class and switched it to the point where I was putting it out and having students sign up at the beginning of class. And now I've been doing it for about 18 months. Uh, there's probably approaching a thousand subscribers. So it's not a huge list, but it's, it's interesting. It's global. You know, every, every newsletter, I used to do it daily and that got to be a little bit overwhelming and people would say, listen, it's very valuable, but I don't have time to read it all. So it probably a weekly thing would, cause I started to ask some of my more uh, supportive people like, would you be upset if I switch back to a week? Uh, so what I do is I spend the week, you know, as you're traversing Twitter and the internet in general, and I have my feed, re- you know, Feedly reader that I just start to save articles. And then usually it's sort of like curating a playlist and that's things start to happen. And my hope was to write original stuff every week that, Uh, obviously sometimes I just have a writer's block or don't have the time to put something together. But I think it was a week or so ago, I decided to write something on Periscope. uh, And surprisingly, Bruce at Hypebot picked that article up and it it has a lot of uh, interest in people as they're discovering Periscope. But usually it's it's trying to stay towards the DIY musician. uh, So it might be useful to a lot of your listeners. And that for me, it's a way to share information that I'm looking at myself. Uh, It serves the students, but it also is a great way for me to grow a community. I realized I was teaching a lot of people, but not staying in touch with them. And so now if somebody hits reply, as even you did once, you hit reply on the email, it it comes right to my inbox. And I, I get, you know, some newsletter issues will go out and I'll get no replies. And then one week, I think I got 10 people replying. They're either questions, opportunities, podcast interviews, you know, just all these things. And so I've, you know, said, oh, this is something I can do. The other cool thing about this whole newsletter is I'm able to finally put myself inside the problem of trying to build a mailing list, of using these widgets, of using services like MailChimp, because I'm not a working musician at this time. You know, I'm not out there putting my album out like uh, Chris at CD Baby, he's able to write about doing a pledge campaign because he's in the middle of a pledge campaign. Uh, So I said, you know, this is a great 
opportunity. I can watch when people unsubscribe. I can check open rates. So all the thing I'm all the things I'm teaching in in online music marketing, I can test those from a perspective of you know seeing what works in email services, and it also gives me an opportunity to check some things that aren't necessarily in the music space that might make sense in the music space, like uh, the autoresponder se- series of emails where you send out sort of drip out content through email. Uh, and talking with some people in the in the industry who work with artists, they're they're also exploring that. I saw even Dave Cusack wrote about the autoresponder series. And it's a case of like when somebody, you know, a new fan comes into your mailing list, they sort of join in the middle of the conversation where they, if, you know, if you know they're a new fan, it gets a little weird because it's like qualifying fans might scare them off to begin with. But if you knew that they were someone who's new to you and maybe just discovered via one song, you could drip out information about them. It's almost like automating the process of becoming a fan. These days, you know, artists are in a situation of just how do you entertain someone, especially an EDM artist who's just essentially not touring? You know, how do they get them up to current with what what they've been doing? So I've been exploring that and uh, looking at things like Twitter lead generation cards. So I test a lot of things on myself, Facebook ads and, and all that. And then I'm able to go back and say, don't do Twitter ads. It's really expensive. Hmm. Uh, I spent $250 of Twitter's money that they gave me to test out the ads and, and I had horrible results. I felt the people that signed up via the ad were very low quality subscribers compared to people I got via Facebook or just organically. So I should say, yes, I do actually want to recommend everybody subscribe to this. If my endorsement of looking forward to this email wasn't enough, can you tell everybody where they can go to sign up? Yeah, the, you can go to uh, The Coil Report, so T-H-E, Coil, C-O-Y-L-E, report.com. And that's a, a companion website uh, blog, which has a lot of the original articles. And sometimes I link up to other stuff, but uh, on there, there's a probably a bunch of buttons. Yeah, get on the list is, is what I'm currently testing as, as, as the, uh, the call to action. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Twitter and Facebook ads. And one of the reasons I reached out to you is you made a really cool ebook on some of the new Facebook ad features that I think for a lot of people are really complex. And, you know, funny enough, like one of my best friends works at Facebook on this product and they're even still sometimes confused (laughs) by some of this stuff. But I really wanted to discuss this because I think that the common knowledge has become, and I admit to being part of what, as of this is that bands really need to give up on Facebook because just shut down your ability to reach fans unless you're going to pay more money than musicians normally have. But this tool seems to be really good, and you're talking about getting a great result. I've had horrible results with Twitter ads as well, but I'm very curious if you could tell us about um, how you what these new Facebook features are and how you're getting a good result from them. With Facebook, they have their ads program. So, and the simplest way to think of Facebook ads is when they prompt you to boost a post, and that's taking something that you posted on a page as an artist or or as a producer or me as a marketer, a marketing consultant is you can boost the post for a little bit of money. And that basically means they're saying, yeah, we'll show it to more people if you give us some money. And that's usually the way a lot of artists will get introduced to boosting or paying for ads on Facebook. And then there's the regular Facebook ads. And Facebook's targeting capabilities are really good. You can target the fans of another band. You can target people geographically. You can target by interests. It makes a lot of sense for 
businesses, maybe not as much sense for artists. And, and very quickly, bands can spend money to acquire likes or email addresses or clicks to their website and then really not see a lot of conversions. And it's because, let's just face it, if you're selling widgets or if you're selling a book or something that's $9 that someone can dive in and learn about Facebook custom audiences, that might be of interest because they have a pain point. They need to learn that. But with a, a band, you know, how long does it take for, to go from awareness to fan? you know, awareness to fan that will financially support. That's a relationship building thing. I started looking into with sort of some prompting from people. There's, there's a guy I'll, I'll give credit to, Jason Hobbs. He runs a service that I mentioned in the book called Foundy, which is F-O-U-N-D dot E-E. And he's a really smart digital marketer. And he, he's like, you know, you're aware of Facebook custom audiences. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. If they'd really be relevant to what I do or, or what I teach. And he said, no, they're, they're definitely used. And so he gave me some examples where St. Vincent had used it. And what it is... Um, it's essentially remarketing, and if if anyone's aware of what that is, you know Google Google calls it remarketing. It's also called retargeting. Uh, Facebook calls them custom audiences. Yes, yeah, some people might know it also through uh, ad roller and yeah. services like that. Yep. So what it is is custom audiences allow you to uh, basically preach to the converted or preach to the people who are already aware of you, or, or better yet, sell to people who've already expressed interest or shown interest in you. And the way you can do that is Facebook gives you some code that you can put on your website so that every user that comes to your website, uh, their browser receives a cookie, and so Facebook knows that they visited your website. So if uh, Veruca Salt has their website cookied, which they do, is... When somebody visits them, then they're put in this pool, the retargeting pool, or as Facebook calls it, a Facebook custom audience. And what that means is down the road, after you let that pool build, Veruca Salt's uh, marketing team could target those people with, a, with an ad or a different ad. Because as you know, in a, as, like the sales funnel or the sales and marketing funnel is that you know, awareness is up at the top. First, you need to make someone aware of a product uh, then you need to, you know, give them some information, a product, you know, there's, there's then the decision phase and then the action phase where they actually maybe buy the product or sign up for the service. So it's not instantaneous. However, if you're aware that somebody has expressed interest by visiting a website, or maybe if you're one, one great thing is if you, if you target the people who visited a tour page, so say there was an artist with a listing of tour dates, you could target that person uh, specifically for for a tour ad, but maybe word the ad, or maybe spend a little differently, or or something, because you know that they already expressed interest in a your band and b your tour because they clicked on something and they went there for whatever reason, whether it was a friends link, a tweet, uh, they may be on your email list, but but you're you're working that angle in that they already knew about you. The other thing that's cool with Facebook custom audiences, which is also a little big brother. Uh, to some people is that you can take your mailing list. So if you're a band with 5,000 emails, you can import them into Facebook and create a custom audience based on the people who are on your mailing list and in Facebook with that email so that you could target ads to them. And yes, you can email them, but as you can tell by open rates on emails, not everyone opens the email. And even if they open your email, they may not click. And even if they open your email, they may not actually even read it. So it might just be like they're 
arrowing through page or paging through their emails and not really reading it. However, if they see the subject line and it says, you know, North American tour starting in November, tickets on sale, but they don't check it out. But then later they go and they see that you're putting an ad, you know, they see an ad on Facebook that mentions your tour because they're already on your mailing list. It might help say, oh, geez, I should go check out to see if they're playing Chicago and see if I can go see them. Uh, it's just a, a you know, more targeted way to spend money on advertising to people who've already expressed interest with in you know to you and so that you can build up uh, you know a lot of it's done like uh, an example that that Jason Hobbs did with the St. Vincent campaign was they gave away I can't remember whether it was a track or an EP they were driving a lot of people to a landing page to lead people to check out they could stream the song I believe and then maybe download it so not everyone would download it some people would just go to the page and maybe you know they're like oh, I don't want to deal with an mp3 or I don't want to download I'm just checking what St. Vincent, Vincent had going on. Uh, but those people were all cookied by the code that the St. Vincent's team had put on that so that Facebook was able to put them in a retargeting pool. And the one thing that I've noticed with the retargeting is you need to have, you need to be able to target those people, you probably need to build up a pool of over a thousand. It's where under, I, I there's no like exact number of like how many people need to be in a pool before you can like target an ad, but Facebook will tell you, uh, you know, your pool's too small at this point. And I think it has to do based on like how you're going to run the ad or what other elements within the targeting. But I've noticed like in my personal case, when I'm, I have a cookie on the coil report and then I've also imported the coil report list into Facebook to see, you know, can I do ads using this and, until recently, it was very small. I would like the pool was less than 1,500 people. The smaller the pool, the more expensive the ads, or maybe you might not even be allowed to do it. So a small band who doesn't have a big mailing list and doesn't have a lot of traffic, this may not be useful. If you get enough traffic that you can build up a pool of 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 people, and the pools can live for on Facebook up to 180 days. Hmm. So you could be... You know, if you were if you were doing a pledge music campaign that was going to last six months, and then you were going to do a regular release, or maybe near the end of the campaign you were going to do a marketing push to maybe drive some less less super, you know, more casual fans to just at least buy the CD or buy the vinyl instead of going for the deluxe hundred dollar package. You could be building that pool over a period of uh, four or five months, and then target those people with ads near the end or you could even do it along the way you know an artist like a level of Rachel Yamagata might have enough traffic within a, a week or two to start targeting ads and you know she's not a huge artist artist but she's a an artist that's big enough in terms of uh, mailing list and traffic to her website that she can target that I'm sure Veruca Salt uh, I wasn't involved at all in their their advertising but I did help them get the, what's called a the pixel uh, is what what Facebook calls their custom audience pixel. I was helping their their webmaster understand that process and get set up. Uh, another thing that I talk about in the book that you can also do. There's a lot of situations where artists need to share links to third party sites. You're sharing a link to iTunes. You're sharing a link to a venue website. You're sharing a link to uh, YouTube. You you know there's your content or your news and information is living elsewhere. 
well, you can't cookie someone on iTunes. You can't cookie someone on a venue's website. You know, you can't build up your pool if you're sending with someone directly to YouTube. However, if you send them through a link shortener, like there's famous link shorteners that a lot of people use, Bitly and Smart URL. Uh, there's even a new one, Genius, G-E-N-I dot U-S, uh, which used to be called GeoRiot. Those service, some of those services allow you to cookie the user along the way. So you're, you're able to place a Facebook custom audience pixel on the user's browser before they get redirected. Uh, and so there was an article I wrote on the Coil Report called Cookie Your Fans Now, Target Them Later. And it was sort of a mini, really mini case study of, of what Veruca Salt was doing. Uh, and I had a graphical representation of, of what happens when you know, a user goes to uh, a pre-order link on Pledge Music site, or say they click on, so they end up on the Pledge Music site, and they don't go to the Veruca Salt website at all. So Veruca Salt technically wouldn't be able to cookie them because they never passed through Veruca Salt site. Veruca Salt site. However, Veruca Salt was using uh, Foundy, which is a link shortener that lets you put uh, a Facebook pixel in, and that that cookies the user along the way. So the user thinks I'm going to Pledge Music to check this out. So it's just a way to build up your retargeting pool and collecting you know, information. You can also see, like with a larger pool, you can do more finer targeting. There would be a, a good example is if you, if you use separate links uh, for, say there was an artist who was getting, they were, they were giving tracks out to radio stations, and the radio stations were, you know, they like the free direct downloads. They don't like the email from media. They just want their listeners to be able to go to the radio station website and get the download. And so what I remember an example of Spoon was working with uh, the found group and they were having, instead of the, giving the radio station the MP3, they said, we're going to host the MP3 ourselves and give you a link. And that link was a, a foundy link so that if a user went to WXRT in Chicago's website and clicked on a link to download Spoon's new single, it went through a foundy link so that user was cookied. Later, they were able to target that through Google AdWords or Facebook, knowing that that person went through the WXRT site. So they're either someone who's likely to be in Chicago or, or you know, be interested in seeing a concert in the Chicago area. So they're, you know, they might run an ad that's specific to that, or they might run an ad that's specific that mentions that song that was downloaded, like, or, or maybe featuring that or something. So just sort of like data analytics through advertising and, and tracking. Uh, sort of, there's been a lot of news. You know, you go to a shoe site, uh, look at a pair of running shoes, and it follows you around the web. That's retargeting, and to some people, that's uh, annoying. Some people and some like people it. Some people think it's just coincidence. Yeah, well, that that I love that. Uh, and there, Facebook allows users to turn that feature off. The craziness of turning it off is, I was about to. I said, "Oh, I'll go turn it off," you know, and not be tracked for a while. But it doesn't stop them from showing you ads on Facebook. It just stops them from showing you relevant ads. And what would you rather see? relevant ads because it doesn't stop them from tracking you it just unhooks it takes it what it does is it unhooks the tracking from the ads and that's stupid if i'm on facebook which i am on a daily basis for for teaching purposes as well as personal you know keeping up with everyone's babies and mm -hmm. vacations <laughs> i would rather see ads that are relevant based on my 
browsing history. Because if I'm browsing somewhere, if I'm looking at, like I was checking out this autoresponder marketing automation service, Autopilot, checking out how, how they do things. And I'm like, okay, I don't have time to really dig into this. And then a day later, I saw an ad for them. That's a relevant ad. It's a reminder to me. Oh, I need to go check that out. Um, I don't. I you know I'm aware of the Big Brother concerns and stuff. And you do if you if you do this stuff if you if you get into the Facebook custom audiences. Part of the terms of, of service and, and conditions is that you have to have a privacy policy on your website. So if somebody Google's Veruca Salt, um, I don't know if they do because I wasn't involved with that, but they should have a privacy policy if somebody goes to their website and looks down there because it. You know, as you as you know, what happens when you go to a, uh, a website in the UK? If you visit a UK website, you'll see that cookie pop up. Uh, that hasn't come to the US, but I imagine that will soon. Uh, and in that case, the user is is very much aware that the website is collecting cookies. In the US, you may not be aware. Uh, however, once you are aware, you want to know what they're doing with it. So you, they should have a privacy policy on their website. That's very cool and very. That was an Excellent, excellent explanation. So I have uh, one question even for myself. So um, you were talking about people not opening emails, which is obviously something people get more and more scared of as Gmail makes more of these filters that keep your mailing list from coming through. I I think this is very cool for people who get missed out on that, of that you got their email address, but they're not opening. Have you seen any effects and greater effects from doing this because like you know traditionally everybody talks about how you know email is usually five times better than facebook uh marketing i would say that email marketing is always going to be more effective because especially if it's written less salesy and more as if the band wrote it in the van on the way to the next show is it's always going to be a little bit more personal what what i've seen with the facebook ads you know and talking with people who run these retargeting campaigns is they serve as just like a billboard on the highway it's it's additional reminder of what's going on however it's being done in a much more filtered and targeted way Uh, i do see I've, i've noticed on my mailing list is people who are really excited to get my emails lose you know and say i connect with them down the road six months later for whatever reason and they're like oh i haven't been reading your newsletter because it goes into my promotions tab and I just forget that it's there and it gets buried under the other promotions. And that's probably going on with a, you know, a lot of bands, anyone who uses Gmail, and it's a plus if you're using it, but it's also a bummer if you used to have open rates of significant numbers. I, I remember working with some artists when they announced their top spin pre-order a couple years ago and they were seeing like 70 or 80% open rates on a list um, with you know ten thousand or twenty thousand people, that's a significant number of opens. Mm-hmm. My, like my email list averages about thirty to forty percent opens, and you know I'm frustrated with that, but I'm told it's not bad. <laughs> it's actually pretty good. And I know, in talking with some other people, they get their list get like ten to fifteen percent opens. Uh, and there's there's things that you can do with with encouraging your fans to drag the email over to the inbox you know, tab rather than leave it in the promotions. But I think Gmail is doing people a favor and I don't necessarily want to clutter up somebody's inbox, you know, if if they're not seeking it out. The other way to think about it is the people that read your emails and act on it are the ones who were going to do it anyways. You know, like the, 
sort of self-selecting. You know, your super fans will self-select themselves. I also see a concern coming that as MP3s become less desirable, mm-hmm. what what are you going to offer in exchange for an email? You know, the the old Tospin 2011 Tospin thought their you know, E4M, their email for media widget, was the best thing since sliced bread because you'd just offer one MP3 and you would get an email from it. Yeah, it works amazing. Yeah, but now who wants an MP3? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, so I think what you get, what what I've in talking with students, they're telling what I tell them is be more creative, give them something that they can't get elsewhere, offer more, maybe like a full album's worth, because there are still people. Um, I I know that I have a friend who runs with an iPod that's not an iPhone, you know, one of those smaller iPods, and and so they live on MP3s because they're just loading that thing up with playlists and stuff. So I I gave up the iPod because once I signed up for streaming, I didn't want to have to deal with MP3s again. So it's been three and a half years. Yeah, I'm right right there with you. Um, cool. This was uh, some amazing information. Can you tell everybody where they can get that book? If you go to Noise Trade and just go to noisetrade.com and then click on the book section and then type my name in. I should have a URL set up, but I don't. But I can give you a, yeah. Basically, I have two books up there. Uh, Benji Rogers and Mike King did a video series, and they had me write four articles for the Pledge Music blog, and we converted that into an ebook. So there's that one. And then the book that we're talking about is the full, the full name is uh, A DIY Musician's Guide, Fa- uh, Facebook Custom Audiences, A DIY Musician's Guide. And it was essentially me doing a pretty in-depth, way too long, 42-page <laughs> tutorial. It, it, is, it is a, I did it that way because what I've been told by the students is it's, it's a really hard to wrap your head around concept. Mm-hmm. When I say go set this up, they sort of get lost. So this was sort of getting, lifting, helping someone up to the, the foundation level. Uh, as far as running ads and stuff, I don't even touch on that. This is really just installing a pixel on your web, you know, activating creating a custom audience, installing a pixel on the website, you know, exploring things like Foundy and some, some other stuff. It, it actually was originally uh, a series of blog posts that when I decided to update it, rather than redo the blog post, I decided to create an ebook. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, I think the true testament to this is, um, and I'll probably just add this to the intro, but like, you know, you're seeing every marketing geek, whether it's like the Gary Vaynerchuks, they're all saying this is the one of the best marketing opportunities they've seen in years. So I think this is a really important thing for people to learn. Yeah, it's it's something I think like right now it's still relevant. There's there's definitely there's some privacy concerns and whether cookie changes, there's uh, whether or not you know, each band will be served well by spending money on Facebook ads. You, I always recommend is start really, really small, like five bucks a day or, or even less. If, you know, like just sort of dip your toe into the water after you've built up a pool, uh, a retargeting pool, try it out. Now, the cool thing is that a small band could end up with a large pool if they have a lot of people checking them out. Uh, you know, so a punk band that maybe has a small email list might actually have a lot of activity because they tour a lot. You know, if you're touring a lot, you're probably on people's minds, and so that means people are Googling you and they're going to your website, even if they're not signing up for your mailing list. And so this this is, you know, 
one reason why I recommend this is there will be people who will never sign up for your mailing list, but they're going to visit your website periodically. Mm, that's a great uh, point. Because there are, there are just people that just, they're overwhelmed with that mail. They, or I hear from the millennials that emails is, you know, they don't use email. And who knows what generation they're calling Generation Edge, the, you know, the Z yeah. generation, whether they'll be utilizing email. So right now, Facebook, I, what I consider is Facebook is like a really good entryway to doing ads. You can go on to Google AdWords and stuff, but, you know, if your audience is hanging out on Facebook and you'll know that by uh, retargeting pools starting to fill up with people, then try advertising to them. They think it's really good for tour marketing, really good for like a pledge music campaign marketing, and then really good for general re release marketing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. Uh, this was really informative. Recommendations are going to be kept a little tight this week because I do not have a lot of time to put together this episode. I want to just reiterate, I recommend you go check out Chandler's free ebook, Ross Barber's survey, and the free webinar I'm doing with Chandler. As well as that, uh, the last recommendation I want to make is a little self-promotional. I recorded a really cool band called The Bonds, who just put out a new EP. And that's really cool, fun, rocking stuff. And the first song from the Leftover Crack record I just mixed is finally up. And it features Jesse Michaels from Op Ivy on guest vocals. And you can find that over at Noisy if you do your Googles. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at Off the Record FM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at offtherecord.fm. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at offtherecord.fm. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.